0: Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's Program Notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caporella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, January 10th through Saturday, the 12th, feature guest conductor Branwell Tovey and baritone Thomas Hampson. The program includes American Songs with Thomas Hampson and music by Sir Edward Elgar, variations on an original theme, the Enigma Variations. Here are notes on the American Songbook by guest annotator Mark Clegg, an associate professor of musicology with tenure at the School of Music, Theater, and Dance at the University of Michigan about Charles Ives' At the River from Five Songs. At the River, also known as Shall We Gather by the River, is a Christian hymn written in 1864 by gospel music composer and Baptist minister Robert Lowry. It was arranged by Charles Ives in 1916 and then orchestrated by John Adams in 1990 as the fourth of a set of five songs by Ives for Voice and Small Orchestra. The lyric references the final chapter of the book of Revelations and thus the final chapter of the Christian Bible's New Testament. It anticipates life after death in heaven. Ives sets only the first of the original's five verses plus its affirmative refrain, yet to close the song, he returns to the hymn's opening questioning phrase. Here, rhythmic interruptions and an unexpected truncated ending avoids resolution in the orchestral accompaniment. The result invites a deeper catechism. Here are notes on selections from Old American Songs by Aaron Copeland. The music of Aaron Copland defines for many the iconic sound of American classical composition, yet his sound is both more modernist and more deeply rooted in earlier American music than is typically appreciated. The sheer familiarity of Copland's populist works such as Appalachian Spring or Fanfare for the Common Man masks his use of mixed meter that marks his music as part of the 20th century. Further, Copland's distinctive open harmonies harken back to the ringing perfect harmonies of colonial-era American psalmody and such Yankee originalists as composer William Billings. Copeland was similarly fascinated with distinctly American musical materials, ranging from folk songs to jazz. It was during his research into early American sheet music in Brown University's Harris Collection of American Poetry and Plays that he discovered inspiration in America's historical songs, ranging from minstrel tunes and campaign music to ballads, revivalist hymns, and a lullaby. Copeland set these songs to new piano accompaniments, often restructuring text, rhythm, and melody, as the old American songs Book One from 1950 and Book Two from 52. He orchestrated both sets in 1955 with baritone William Warfield premiering the first with the Los Angeles Philharmonic and mezzo-soprano Grace Bunbury premiering the second with the Ohio Festival Orchestra and the composer conducting later that same year. For these performances, Hampson has assembled his own selection of three of these songs, Simple Gifts and The Boatman's Dance from Book 1 and Golden Willow Tree from Book 2. Featured prominently as the final dance episode to Appalachian Spring, Copeland's nineteen forty four ballet for Martha Graham, the song Simple Gifts was written by elder Joseph Brackett in eighteen forty eight for the United Society of Believers in Christ's Second Appearing, a religious community more commonly known as the Shakers. In Copeland's ballet, The tune served as the theme for a set of dance variations, but Copland set simple gifts as a song in a freer recitative-like style that defies any sense of a regular dance-like pulse and thus emphasizes the lyric's timeless spiritual promise of a heavenly afterlife, the valley of love and delight referred to in the text. Credited to Dan Emmett, The Boatman's Dance was originally a minstrel tune celebrating the wily masculinity of an Ohio Riverman. Copeland expunged the racist blackface dialect of the original, the title, for example, had been, "De Boatman's Dance, and introduces each rollicking verse refrain pairing with a clarion call and echo, transforming a once comic dance into an art song evoking the geography of the river. The Golden Willow Tree is Copeland's setting of a traditional British ballad, also known as The Sweet Trinity or The Golden Vanity. In each version, the title is the name of a ship threatened with capture, typically by a British ship in the song's American versions, that is saved by the ingenuity of a shipboy whose heroism is rewarded by tragedy. Copeland's arrangement is based on a 1937 recording made by banjo player and singer Justice Begley and preserved in the archive of American Folk Song at the Library of Congress. About William Grant Still's In Memoriam, The Colored Soldiers Who Died for Democracy, Mark Clegg tells us, This is an orchestral tone poem commissioned by the League of Composers. Still active today, the League was founded in 1923 as an advocacy group for contemporary music and living composers. William Grant Still, known as the Dean of African-American composers, was one of 17 composers given the task of commemorating the Second World War in music, even as the conflict continued to rage across the globe. Still's music, with such titles as the Afro-American Symphony from 1930, and the Choral Orchestral Ballad and They lynched Him on a Tree from 1940, was often inspired by the political consciousness of the Harlem Renaissance and its demand that black Americans be recognized not only as human beings deserving of civil rights, but also as U.S. citizens, as full participants in American civic life. Musically, In Memoriam offers a passionate neo-romantic statement affirming the humanity of the colored soldiers who died for democracy. Yet... The work's title itself calls ironic, if not bitter, attention to the treatment of black soldiers who, while called upon to make the same ultimate sacrifice of life as white soldiers to protect the country they loved, were not treated equally by the nation. Segregation and discrimination meant that the freedom for which black soldiers fought were denied to them in war and to their families at home. About Walter Damrush's Danny Deaver in the orchestration by Bramwell Tovey. Best remembered for The Jungle Book from 1894, English writer Rudyard Kipling created the poem Danny Deaver in 1890, telling the story of a member of the British infantry sentenced to death for killing a fellow soldier. This vernacular, barrack room ballot, is considered one of Kipling's best and may have been based on a real-life example, the 1887 execution of a private flaxman. The text offers the tale of military justice and the inculcation of discipline among inexperienced recruits increasingly charged with the assertion of national power abroad in the era of colonization. Although remembered today as the conductor of the New York Symphony, Walter Damrosch was a prolific composer. In 1897, he created a song using Kipling's text that became its most popular setting. Its snappy military rhythms and marching bass line convey both the dramatic scene and the emotional intensity of the text. Damrosh's music also marks the lyrics' alternating conversational structure with the files on parade asking questions to their color sergeant, who answers by describing Deaver's ignoble demise. And now on to Michael Doherty's letter to Mrs. Bixby from Letters from Lincoln. This is from 2009, a commission for baritone Thomas Hampson by the Spokane Symphony in celebration of the 200th anniversary of the Civil War president's birth. Born in 1809 in rural Kentucky, Abraham Lincoln taught himself math and letters by reading Shakespeare, poetry, newspapers, and books on math and philosophy. He also taught himself violin and harmonica. For the anniversary work, composer Michael Doherty chose to feature texts from Lincoln's personal letters, including his famous November 21, 1864, Note of Condolences to Mrs. Lydia Bixby, a widow then believed to have lost five sons to service in the Union Army. Doherty's musical setting intertwines a weighted, sorrowful vocal line with a hymn-like accompanimental melody in a combination that seems to defy gravity and thus conveys both the anguish of mourning and the apotheosis of heroism. Despite the sublime directness of Lincoln's text, historians have since determined that only two of Bixby's sons died in battle, a third deserted the army, a fourth was honorably discharged, and a fifth either deserted or died as a prisoner of war. Here is the letter to Mrs. Bixby Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the Adjutant General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you from the grief of a loss so overwhelming, but I cannot refrain from tendering you the consolation that may be found In the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. And now on to John Corleano's One Sweet Morning from One Sweet Morning. Composer John Corleano was initially paralyzed artistically by a commission from Alan Gilbert and the New York Philharmonic to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks with a 30-minute orchestral work. He feared that any resulting instrumental composition would be heard as a nightmarish tone poem, as a soundtrack to the horrific events of the day and the images burned into the memories of those who had witnessed the tragedy either firsthand or on television. Replacing such memories with the lyric of song provided a creative escape route. The composer explains the result in his own program note. I needed a cycle of songs that would embed 9-11 into that larger story. So I chose four poems, one of them part of an epic poem from different ages and countries. The first poem, Czesław Mislas' A Song on the End of the World, written in Warsaw in 1944, sets a tranquil scene, a vista of serenity that still hints at the possibility of chaos to come. The poet's descriptions of everyday matters turn chilling when he notes, No one believes it is happening now. My setting for these words is hushed and motionless, never rising in volume and intensity. Shattering the Calm is the second poem, that portion of Homer's Iliad chronicling a massacre led by the Greek prince Patroclus. Each kill is described in detail and the music, too, strives for the brutal and unsparing. War South of the Great Wall by the 8th century poet Li Po follows. Its cool atmospheric language views the bloody battle from a great remove, Warriors seem to swarm like armies of ants. The narrator's poise collapses only when she reveals, "'My husband, my sons, you'll find them all there, "'out where war drums throb and throb.'" Her anguish and the battle that is its cause surge in an orchestral interlude, climaxing with the orchestra alone, meditating on the narrator's themes. The orchestra, diminishing in intensity, introduces the poem that gives the cycle its name, One Sweet Morning, by E.Y. Yip Harburg, a name that might surprise audiences who know it principally from his sparkling lyrics for such plays and movies as The Wizard of Oz and Finian's Rainbow. But Harburg also wrote a few volumes of light and not-so-light verse, and it was in one of those that I came upon this deep and tender lyric one sweet morning ends the cycle with the dream of a world without war an impossible dream perhaps but certainly one worth dreaming in this short poem Harburg paints a beautiful scene where the rose will rise spring will bloom peace will come one sweet morning notes by guest annotator mark clegg on the american songbook And now, on to Sir Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations, a work lasting about 29 minutes, the notes by Philip Husher. The temptation to improvise at the piano after a hard day's work surely never produced greater results than on an October evening in the Worcestershire countryside in 1898. Tired out from hours of teaching violin and writing music... That would never make him famous. Edward Elgar began to play a tune that caught his wife's ear. Alice asked what it was. Nothing, he replied, but something might be made of it. And then, to prove or perhaps test his point, he began to play with it. "'Powell would have done this, or Nevison would have looked at it like this,' he commented as he went, drawing on the names of their friends. Alice said, "'Surely you are doing something that has never been done before.' Alice wasn't quite right. In terms of historical fact, Schumann's Carnival, for example, depicts a number of characters, real and imagined. But she obviously sensed that her husband had hit upon something important, not only to his own faltering career, but for music itself. And so what was begun in a spirit of humor was soon continued in deep seriousness, as Elgar later recalled, of the music that would make him famous, along with Powell, Nevison, and a number of the composer's other friends. On October 24th, he wrote to August Jaeger, the closest of those friends, I have sketched a set of variations on an original theme. The variations have amused me because I've labeled them with the nicknames of my particular friends. You are Nimrod. That is to say... I've written the variations, each one to represent the mood of the party. i have like to imagine the party writing the variation, him or herself, and have written what I think they would have written, if they were asses enough to compose. It's a quaint idea, and the result is amusing to those behind the scenes, and won't affect the hearer who knows nothing. The work went well. On November 1st, Elgar played at least six variations for Dora Penny, now known as Dora Bella, or Variation 10. On January 5th, Elgar wrote to Jaeger, I say, those variations, I like them. By February 22nd, he told Dora Bella that the variations were done and yours is the most cheerful. I have orchestrated you well. The orchestration of the piece took the two weeks from February 5th through the 19th, 1899. Elgar then sent the score off to Hans Richter, the great German conductor known for championing both Wagner and Brahms. Elgar waited a long, nervous month for a response, but Richter recognized the quality of this music and agreed to give the premiere in London. For Elgar, already in his 40s, and not yet a household name even in England, Richter's advocacy was decisive. The first performance was a great success for both Elgar and for British music. The critics recognized the work as a landmark, and although one was aggravated that the dedication to my friends pictured within didn't name names, he was at least honest enough to admit that the music stood handsomely on its own. The friends have long been identified, but a greater question still remains— At the time of the premiere, Elgar wrote, The enigma I will not explain. Its dark saying must be left unguessed, and I warn you that the apparent connection between the variations and the theme is often of the slightest texture. Further, through and over the whole set, another and larger theme goes but is not played, so the principal theme never appears even as in some late dramas that is uh, Maeterlinck's L'entreuse and Les Sept Princesses, the chief character is never on the stage those are words Elgar later came to regret because the public's curiosity often overshadowed the music Elgar himself only made matters worse by divulging that the larger theme fit in counterpoint with his original theme by telling Arthur Troy Griffin, Variation 7, that the theme is so well known that it is extraordinary that no one has spotted it, and by admonishing Dorabella that she of all people had not guessed it. Several melodies have been favored over the years, including God Save the King, Rule Britannia, and most often, "Old Lang Syne. But to date, the enigma still remains its place in Elgar's title, Dorabella and her husband Richard Powell once asked Elgar outright about Old Lang Syne, and he denied it. But by then he was so tired of the whole mystery that many doubted the sincerity of his answer. For full descriptions of the friends pictured within, we are indebted to the invention of the piano roll. When the Aeolian Company later issued the Enigma Variations in this newfangled format, Elgar contributed his own comments on this circle of men and women in his life. Here, then, follows the portrait gallery with some of Elgar's remarks. Theme This is an original melody, as Elgar's title boasts born that October night in 1898 and without connections to anyone in the composer's life. It has been suggested that those important first four notes perfectly set the composer's own name, but as we shall see, Elgar saves himself for last. It's worth remembering, however, that when he wrote The Music Makers, an autobiographical Ein Heldenleben kind of work in 1912, he recalled this theme to represent the loneliness of the creative artist. So here we are with variation number one, C.A.E., Caroline Alice Elgar, the composer's wife. The variation, Elgar writes, is really a prolongation of the theme with what I wish to be romantic and delicate additions. Those who knew CAE will understand this reference to one whose life was a romantic and delicate inspiration. She was his muse. After Alice died in 1920, Elgar really never worked again. The little triplet figure in the oboe and the bassoon at the very beginning mimics the whistle with which Elgar signaled Alice whenever he came home. 2. HDSP. Hugh David Stewart Powell played chamber music with Elgar. His characteristic diatonic run over the keys before beginning to play here is humorously travestied in the semi-quaver 16th note passages. These should suggest a toccata but chromatic beyond HDSP's liking. Their frequent partner was Basil Nevison. variation 12. Three, R.B.T., Richard Baxter Townshend, who regularly rode through the streets of Oxford on his bicycle with the bell constantly ringing, is here remembered for his presentation of an old man in some amateur theatricals, the low voice flying off occasionally in soprano timbre. Dorabella also recognized the bicycle bell in the pizzicato strings. 4. W.M.B., William Meath Baker, was a country squire, gentleman, and scholar. In the days of horses and carriages, it was more difficult than in these days of petrol to arrange the carriages for the day to suit a large number of guests. This variation was written after the host had, with a slip of paper in his hand, forcibly read out the arrangements for the day and hurriedly left the music room with an inadvertent bang of the door. 5. R.P.A. Richard Penrose Arnold was a son of Matthew Arnold and a great lover of music which he played on the pianoforte in a self-taught manner, evading difficulties but suggesting in a mysterious way the real feeling. In the middle section, we learn that his serious conversation was continually broken up by whimsical and witty remarks. 6. Isabel Isabel Fitton was an amateur violist. The opening bar, a phrase made use of throughout the variation, is an exercise for crossing strings, a difficulty for beginners. On this is built a pensive and, for a moment, romantic movement. 7. Troit. Arthur Troit Griffith, an architect, was one of Elgar's closest friends. The uncouth rhythm of the drums and lower strings was really suggested by some maladroit assays to play the pianoforte. Later, the strong rhythm suggests the attempts of the instructor, E.E., to make something like order out of chaos, and the final despairing slam records that the effort proved to be in vain. 8. W.N., Winifred Norbury lived at Sherridge, a country house, with her sister Florence. The music was really suggested by an 18th century house. The gracious personalities of the ladies are sedately shown, especially Winifred's characteristic laugh. 9. Nimrod. Nimrod is the mighty hunter named in Genesis 10. Alfred Jaeger, Jaeger is German for hunter, was Elgar's greatest and dearest friend. That is apparent from this extraordinary music, which is about the strength of ties and the depth of human feelings. These 43 bars of music have come to mean a great deal to many people. They are, for that reason, often played in memoriam when common words fail and virtually all other music falls short. The variation records a long summer evening talk when my friend discoursed eloquently on the slow movements of Beethoven. The music hints at the slow movement of the Pathetique Sonata, though it reaches the more rarefied heights of Beethoven's last works. Dorabella remembered that Jaeger also spoke of the hardships Beethoven endured, and he urged Elgar not to give up. Elgar later wrote to him, "'I have omitted your outside manner,' and have only seen the good, lovable, honest soul in the middle of you. The music's not good enough. Nevertheless, it was an attempt of your EE. Jaeger died young in 1909. Twenty years later, Elgar wrote, His place has been occupied but never filled. 10. Dora Bella Dora Penny, later Mrs. Richard Powell, and to the Elgars, always Dora Bella from Mozart's fan tutte. Her variation, titled Intermezzo, is shaded throughout by a dance-like likeness and delicately suggests the stammer with which she spoke in her youth. 11. GRS Dr. George R. Sinclair was the organist of Hereford Cathedral, though it's his beloved bulldog, Dan, who carries the music, first falling down a steep bank into the River Wye and then paddling upstream to a safe landing. Anticipating the skeptics, Elgar writes Dan in bar 5 of the manuscript, where Dr. Sinclair's dog barks reassuringly in the low strings and wins Fortissimo. 12. B.G.N., Basil G. Nevison was a fine cellist who regularly joined Elgar and Hugh David Stewart Powell, Variation 2, in chamber music. The soaring cello melody is a tribute to a very dear friend whose scientific and artistic attainments and the wholehearted way they were put at the disposal of his friends particularly endeared him to the writer. 13. The only enigma among the portraits, just asterisks in place of initials, and romanza at the top of the page. The clarinet, quoting from Mendelssohn's Calm Sea and Prosperous Voyage midway through, points to Lady Mary Legan, who supposedly was crossing the sea to Australia as Elgar wrote this music. She wasn't. The drums suggest the distant throb of a liner, Elgar writes. Although Elgar eventually confirmed the attribution, it has never entirely satisfied a suspicious public. Dora Bella claimed that in the composer's mind, the asterisks stood for My Sweet Mary. 14. E.D.U. E.D.U. was Alice's nickname for her husband. This is his self-portrait, written at a time when friends were dubious and generally discouraging as to the composer's musical future. Alice and Jaeger, two who never lost their faith in him, make brief appearances. The music is forceful, even bold. It's delivered with an unusual strength known best to late bloomers, the defiance of an outsider intent on finding an audience, and the confidence of a man who has always wished to be more than another variation on a theme a parting word about the title. The work wasn't at first called Enigma. Elgar used the word for the first time in a letter to Jaeger written at the end of May 1899, three months after the score was finished. Enigma is written on the title page for the autograph manuscript, but it's written in pencil and not by Elgar. When the Chicago Symphony introduced this music to the United States in 1902, the program page listed it only as Variations, Opus 36. And finally, tracking down the enigma in 1953, the Saturday Review sponsored a contest for the best solution to the identity of Elgar's enigma. The top prizes, the composer's daughter, Carice Elgar Blake, was one of the judges. Were awarded to the Agnus Dei from Bach's B minor Mass, the trio. Una Bella Serenata, from Mozart's Cosi tutte, the slow movement of Tchaikovsky's Potatique Symphony, and God Save the Queen. None, however, seemed particularly convincing, and the search continued. In 1976, Theodor von Houten proposed rule Britannia, which includes a phrase that is nearly identical to the opening of the enigma and should have been obvious to Dora Penny of all people, as Elgar remarked, because the British penny was engraved with the figure of Britannia. In 1984, Derek Hudson showed even more persuasively how a phrase of Old Lang Syne fits Elgar's theme and many of its variations. In 1991, Joseph Cooper, a British pianist, proposed a new solution. He claimed he stumbled upon the answer 30 years ago at a performance of Mozart's Prague Symphony in Royal Festival Hall in London, but chose to keep it a secret. As he followed a score during that long ago concert, Mr. Cooper noticed, midway through the slow movement, echoes of the opening of Elgar's Enigma Variations. The two passages aren't identical rhythmically, Moreover, Mozart is in G major, Elgar in G minor, but they are strikingly similar. There are other connections. Two weeks before Elgar invented his theme at the piano, he had heard the Prague Symphony. Mozart's Symphony also was the closing work on the concert of June 19th, 1899, when the Enigma Variations were given their first performance. Although Elgar authority Gerald Northrop Moore hailed Cooper's Solution, Other scholars, Elgar lovers, and puzzle fanatics remain unconvinced. The detective game continues. In 2017, a Cleveland police officer claimed that 19 symbols written by Elgar into the margin of an 1886 program for a concert of Liszt's music is a code for the solution, which, through a convoluted deciphering process, connects the first six measures of the Enigma variations with Liszt's lay Prélude." Last year, Bob Paget from Plano, Texas, made news with his carefully developed theory that the secret tune is, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which fits perfectly in counterpoint with Elgar's theme, if you use three different versions of Martin Luther's hymn, those by Luther, Bach, and Mendelssohn, and play it backwards. Elgar scholars have remained uniformly skeptical. Program notes by Philip Usher on the Enigma variations by Sir Edward Elgar. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.